going to jump right in to our study in Ephesians. We're starting Ephesians 5, and Ephesians is a book of six chapters that neatly divides itself into two halves. The first half is all about what you have in Christ, what Christ has done for you, and your position relating to Christ as a result of what he's done for you. So those first three chapters are all, this is what God has done for you, this is what he's done for you, this is what he's done for you, and it leaves you overwhelmed by the love and grace of God. Those first three chapters are so important because the back half of Ephesians, the back three chapters, are all about how to walk out the Christian life. If you jump straight to the back three chapters without the first three, it's going to feel very legalistic. It's going to feel very dead. It's going to feel like a bunch of rules. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And sometimes the problem is we go straight to wanting to obey his commands, wanting to obey his commands. And we've never let him love us first. We've never had an encounter with the love of Jesus. And we are firmly committed here at New Hope to the philosophy that you need to experience the love of God and then live the Christian life out of that love. If you go straight to trying to live the Christian life out of legalism or rules or trying to be a good person, it's going to be very frustrating. You're going to fail. There's going to be no grace. It's going to be no fun at all. So that's what we've been studying in the first three chapters. If you've missed that, you can actually pick up a CD on the way out at the Welcome Center that has those first three chapters worth of teaching on it. I, I, I highly recommend it. And not just because it's me. Um, But we're going to jump in in chapter 5 today, looking at how to walk out the Christian life. And and I I have four boys. And there is a universal game that must be coded into our sinful nature all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Because my kids didn't learn this from anybody. They just instinctively knew, like some sort of annoyance savant, that this is how you can annoy a sibling. And, and, and it's simply to, to imitate them. They're just going about their business, they're talking, and then one of the brothers will just start copying everything that they say. Everything that they say. And you can just feel the tension rising. Stop it, stop it. I don't like it when you do that. I don't like it when you do that. <laughs> and my kids just recognize this is like annoying. But I don't know how it was when you were a kid, because I know you did this too. But, but, but the real genius of annoyance would always play out like this. Because the person who was the victim would always think to themselves, okay, I'm going to outsmart you. I'm an idiot. And then the genius of annoyance would push them over the edge by choosing that point to say, you're an idiot. (laughs) Ah! And that's usually what happens. You just go nuts and they start fighting and going after each other. So as we we pick up Ephesians today in chapter 5, right? Chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to be talking about imitation. And we're going to be talking about the one verse that sums up the entire Christian walk in one verse. It's not annoy other people. That's not the connection. This is the entire Christian walk in one verse. In fact, this, this is our ethos. That's your first fill-in on the outline. This is our ethos. That simply means this is, this is our ethics as believers. This is our entire philosophy as Christians about how we live. Having someone imitate us is frustrating because we're not God, and we really don't want to look in the mirror all day. Amen? We really don't want that. None of us are thinking, you know what would be great is if I could just interact with myself all day. That would be amazing, you know? But we're not God. But Jesus is, thank God. And for us, acting like him would be an enormous upgrade, whoever we are. It would be an enormous upgrade. That's why Paul sums up the entire Christian walk in verse 1, by saying this, therefore be imitators of God 
as dear children. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. You might want to underline the word imitators and the word children. It's going to be important today for our study. Be imitators of God as dear children. Many of us are are dealing with issues within ourselves today that are the result of our parents. They're transference issues. And uh, I have a transference issue, which is a fear of heights. Fear of heights. So Fortunately, I live in the city of a thousand suspension bridges. So um, we go out with our kids, and, and, I, and I recognized very quickly that, that I actually wasn't scared of heights. It was entirely transferred from my mom. When I would go on roller coasters, I remember the first coaster I went on was at Playland. And the worst part of the coaster is when they're pulling you up slowly, because you're so aware of how high you are off the ground, and you're thinking, this cannot be safe. And uh, I did that, and I did it a few times, and I started realizing, you know, I'm not actually scared of heights. And then I thought about it, and I realized this was all transferred from my mom, who whenever we were anywhere close to an edge, you know, her grip would get super, super tight. First time we went to, uh, to Disneyland in Europe, we went to Euro Disney. We went on Big Thunder Mountain, which, if you don't know, is really one of the tamest roller coasters on earth. And I went on it with my mom, and, and my memory is halfway through the ride hearing my mom audibly pray for our survival next to me, you know? And that had, that had an effect on me as it relates to heights. And I'm determined not to pass that on to my kids. So when we go to Lynn Canyon or anything like that, I'm always the one at the back of our family group, just smiling and, you know, casually gripping the rail with the entire strength of my being, but smiling at the kids and pretending everything's fine. And they they bounce across the bridge, and I I don't say anything. I just pretend I'm fine. And I immediately regret sharing this with family members in the congregation today. Immediately, you know. I can already see the entire extended family jumping up and down on the bridge right as I get to the middle with video cameras. So many of us have, the, have these mannerisms, the, these patterns of thinking that have been uh, passed down. And, and, and sometimes it takes years of counseling to get rid of those negative patterns of behavior. So, sometimes even more than that. But many of us have had good things passed down from our, our, our parents too. We have a good work ethic. And, and as I've looked at myself... I've realized that often the things that we take great credit for in our own lives, we're simply the beneficiary of modeled behavior in our parents. You know, when we talk about our own great work ethic and look down on others, we only have a work ethic because we saw it in somebody else as a result of that most of the time. So there's a lot to be said for transference issues. And as adults, we're allowed to choose who we will consciously imitate. And um, here's what I mean is even the person who's the free thinker has made a commitment to be a free thinker because they were inspired by somebody else who was a free thinker and they're trying to be like them. Uh, Colleges are a great place to observe this behavior because in college, everyone's an independent thinker just like everybody else, you know? Their professor tells them they should be an independent thinker and tells them what that looks like and what it means and what opinions they'll have if they're an independent thinker, and so they become that independent thinker because they decide they're going to imitate that role model in their life. Paul is saying that we should desire to imitate Christ the same way that a young child imitates their mother or father. Nobody ever has to tell a child, you should try to be like mom, you should try to be like dad. We all know that we can't help it. We're soaking it up all the time. We want to be like them. We can't help it. We just want to be like them. And what Paul is saying, he's saying that same desire should be in our relationship with Christ. And I really don't want you to miss that word at the end of that first sentence, which is the word 
children. Because th- this is a huge concept. Because Paul is saying we should imitate Christ as a child would imitate a parent. As a child would imitate a parent. Because there's a difference between the way a child imitates a parent and an adult imitates another adult. When we were kids, we copied our parents even when we didn't really understand what they were doing or why. You ever seen a, a five-year-old shaving? It's not really an issue that they need to address, right? You know, I got, I got a little, little stubble. I haven't shaved for a few days. They're just doing it because they saw dad do it. That's the only reason they're doing it. But in our minds, when we were kids, we looked at our parents and we thought, that's got to be how you do it because that's, that's how they're doing it. And they would obviously only choose to do it the right way. And because mom and dad are doing it, that must be the right way. Paul says, be like that with Jesus. Be like that with Jesus. Even when you don't fully understand, be imitators of Christ because the results of that behavior will always be full of life. Always, always. This is on your outline. A child imitates their father even when they don't fully understand. Even when they don't fully understand. I wonder this about my own life, which is when when will God's track record of faithfulness in my life be good enough? When when will it be good enough? Good enough that I I obey him without hesitation. Uh, Good enough that I obey him without drawing up a list of pros and cons. There's never been a single instance in my life, not one, where choosing my way over God's has ultimately worked out to my benefit. Ever. Not, not one. Not one. And I've made that same mistake hundreds of thousands of times in my life. Repeatedly. God's never broken a single promise to me. Not even, not even one. Not once. All his ways are good without exception. And any time I've disagreed with that statement, I've always realized that I was simply too immature at the time to fully appreciate the goodness of God. And I've wished that I had later on. And the truth is that I, I fight my flesh and my own desires every single day. God, God knows this, and this is why he tells us, I'm the perfect father. I'm the perfect father. You can trust me. You don't have to understand everything right now. But just trust me. Just follow me. Do what I do because I'm your father. I promise it's the best way to live. Just trust me like a child would trust a good dad. And when you, when you begin to understand this, you realize that because he said so is a perfectly valid reason to obey God. Perfectly valid reason to obey God in everything, because he says so. It's not a blind faith. It's a faith built on seeing God never, ever fail to be faithful, ever. So when God says, hey, do this, our response should be, okay, why are you doing that? Because God said so. Well, do you understand everything about why he would ask you to do that? No, no, I don't. But he's never, ever been wrong. Ever. So I've just finally reached the point where I've decided, you know what? I can do a big song and dance and write a list of whys and reasons to do it or not to obey. Or, or I can just say, you know what, he's never wrong, ever. I'm going to save myself some time and mental anguish and just obey God and reap the benefits of doing so. It's not a blind faith. It's built on God's track record. And, and this is really the essence of being a believer. And, and you know, in Scripture, there's no differentiation between believer, disciple, Christian, 
follower. We, we kind of like to look at our modern Christian life and say, yeah, you've got Christians and you've got Christians that are kind of middle of the road Christians and you've got the all in Christians. And the problem is in scripture, there's no differentiation. You're either all in, you're a disciple, or you're not. J- Jesus didn't build any hierarchy into Christianity as it relates to him. He didn't say, you know, you're a level three. So work your way up to a level four, and then, uh, you know, we can talk some more. Once you've logged 500 volunteer hours at the church, you'll be a level five. We'll give you a special badge. There'll be a ceremony, and it'll be very special, you know. There's nothing like that built into Christianity. There's just disciple, all out, all in follower of Christ or not. There is a middle group of lukewarm believers, but you really don't want to know what God says about them in the Bible. We'll talk about that another week. But there's only followers of Christ. Jesus doesn't say there's a special place in heaven for everyone who, who added my philosophies to Buddha's and everybody else's and thought I was a good guy. Jesus says, I'm either your Lord and Savior or I'm nothing to you. That is the only type of relationship I'm willing to have. That's what God says. He's very, very black and white. So this is the essence of being a believer It's very simple. The essence of being a believer is following Christ. It's following Christ. and In fact, the King James Version says the same verse as be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. And the idea is very, very simple. It's like playing follow the leader. We go where he goes. We do what he does. We say what he says. We're imitators of Christ. We're followers of of God. In our lives, that means that our speech should mirror his speech. We should be speaking the same sort of encouragements to each other that we find in Scripture, the words of Jesus, full of life, full of honor towards the Father, full of encouragement. This means that our priorities should line up with his priorities. We're followers, and we are following Christ. We're not disciples, we're not followers. When we say, yes, yes, Lord, I I want you to be the Lord of my life, then Jesus says, okay, let's go over here. And we say, no, that's cool, I'm gonna go over here. That's the exact opposite of being a follower. The exact opposite of being a follower. The exact opposite. Jesus gives the picture of following because the truth is you can follow Jesus immediately upon salvation. All you have to do is follow follow him. You got to keep that picture. Jesus doesn't say, okay, you've come into the kingdom. You're, You're a part of my family now. Now I need you to make it to this super secret special place. How do I get there? You got to figure that out. He doesn't do that. Jesus just says, listen, follow me. Follow me. When you're a new believer, what this means is when you find out Jesus is going somewhere, when you find out he said something, when you find out that this is how Jesus lives, you just say, yeah, okay, I'm going to do that. All right. All right. Jesus doesn't gossip. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to gossip. Okay. Jesus is full of compa- I'm compassion. I'm going to try to f- try to be full of compassion. As soon as you find out that Jesus is all about something, you immediately say, okay, I want to do that. I want to do that. But when your heart is, let me write out a list. Let me really ponder. So I want to do that. Let me really think about it. That's not the heart of a follower. Jesus just says, follow me. Just follow me. That's all the disciples did for three years with Jesus. Literally. That's all they did was just follow him around. Just followed him around. And that's what it means to be a believer. So with that in mind, we, we want to ask the, the question today that we would be remiss if we did not 
which is, are you a follower of Christ? Are you a follower of Christ? Are you an imitator of Christ? Are you a disciple? Or did you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and and he went this way and you said, no, I'm going to go this way. Jesus says you need to ask yourself the question, "Are are you following me? Are you following me? To be a Christian is an active state of being. It's not an event. It's an active state of being, to be a Christian. Continuing in verse two, Paul says, and walk in love, and you're gonna wanna underline these words, as Christ. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Immediately, we, we see this idea, we've talked about this before, that everything Paul calls us to do, he's always pointing back to Jesus. He's always pointing back to Jesus. He's saying, be like Jesus, live like Jesus. Our motivation always comes from the cross. He says, hey, if you're having trouble being motivated to do this, just remember Jesus died for you. He always points back, and Paul says, never lose perspective, never lose perspective. So immediately, he's talked about following Jesus, and he immediately says, now walk in love. How do I do that? Well, like Christ did. Just follow the example of Christ. Walk in love as Christ has also loved us. We talked about this in our marriage series as well, that you cannot fully love somebody until you've experienced the love of God. The Bible says God is love. He invented it. He's the definition of it. And until you've experienced the the grace-filled love of God, who loves you simply because you're his, that's the only reason he loves you because you're made in his image, you're his kid. Till you've experienced that sort of unconditional love, you cannot properly, adequately love somebody else because your idea of love is distorted until you've experienced it in God. Till you've experienced it in God. Because the love of God humbles you. The love of God is so unconditional when that truth sinks in. You're still gonna mess up in your relationships, but you've set that as the role model, that as the grade, that as the standard for your life. I'm called to love as Jesus loved, so I don't have the right to stay bitter. I'm called to love as Jesus loved, I don't have the right to walk in unforgiveness. Jesus is the definition of love. When we choose to walk in obedience to the Father, it's like a sweet-smelling aroma to him. The, The sacrifice that the Father delights in is the sacrifice of our will for his. But when we lay our will on the altar and and sacrifice it, as Christ said, not my will but yours be done, that blesses the heart of the Father. Blesses the heart of the Father. That's why scripture says that the Father in response to Jesus laying down his will when he went to the cross, the Father gave Jesus the name above all names and exalted him to the highest place of praise in the universe. Philippians says this, it says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God, the Father, also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Heavenly Father is blessed by our obedience. He's blessed by our obedience. The power of obedience is that it's loving God on His terms instead of ours. That's the power of obedience. And I resonate with this as a father of five kids. 
there, there's so much resistance so much of the time. I'm sure you've all seen a small kid. You're like, hey, come put your shoes on. And they obey, but this is how they obey. <laughs> you're like, ah! You're like, yes, it's, yes, it's technically obedience, but it's so reluctant. It's so laborious. There's no joy in it. There's no honor in it at all. But those times when you ask your kid to do something and for some reason they've had a visitation from Jesus Christ in their room at nap time and your kid is like, yes, Father, right away. And they go, you're like, wow, wow, this is amazing. Why can't it be like this all the time? And it's just something about it just blesses you. It blesses you because for that brief sliver of a moment, it's like they've actually realized I'm their father. They're actually treating me like you should treat a father with honor and with respect and a desire to be obedient and a blessing to him. And those moments are just like, ah, thank you, God, I can make it through another week. That's what those moments are like. No drama, no, no giant fight, no resistance. Man, that blesses my heart as a father. That blesses my heart so much. And that's why Jesus said, As we said right at the beginning, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I ask you to do. It's not rocket science. He said, if if you love me, you'll do this. If you love me, you'll do this. Many of you have heard of the the five love languages. We've got uh, touch, quality time, gifts, acts of service, and words of encouragement. And as I study the scriptures, I would contend that if God has a love language, it is obedience. It is obedience. That is the love language of God. And the whole idea of the love languages is that you're loving a person on their terms, the way that they would like to be loved, rather than the way that you would like to choose to love them. God says things in Scripture like, to obey is greater than sacrifice. To obey is greater than sacrifice. For you to do what I've asked you to do means more to me than the biggest song and dance you can put on that I haven't asked you to do. Be obedient. Be obedient. That's what God wants more than anything. When you discover something in, in his word that he's called you to do, jump to it. Jump to it. That's the heart of a father, of a follower, sorry. Not someone who says, ah, uh, uh, okay. <sighs> be a follower. Jump to it out of a desire to be a blessing to your heavenly father. And God says, man, that is a sweet sacrifice. That's a blessing to me. And God says, I want you to walk in love. Verse 3, but fornication and uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. And I think we need to pause here and and properly define these two words, fornication and covetousness. Uh, Fornication in the original Greek is the word parneia. Uh, from where we get the word pornography. And ma- many other translations use the phrase sexual immorality. And, and this is very simple. Fornication refers to any and every type of sexual activity outside of God's design. Anything outside of God's design. And, and, and God's design is for all that to take place inside the commitment of marriage between a man and a woman. Everything outside of that is covered by this blanket terminology, fornication, sexual immorality. And, and, and this, is, this is really important because you could do your own exhaustive study into this out of a desire to find a loophole 
And I've done this when I was a teenager. You can do an exhaustive study and you'll still come to the same conclusion. It's completely unavoidable that this is the intent of the scriptures. And, and a lot of people will say, well, the Bible doesn't really speak to, to this issue. The Bible doesn't say anything about this specific issue. But you need to understand the concept. Th- this is what it is saying. It's saying there's God's plan, God's design, and everything outside of that is what God is putting in that terminology. So the goal is not to say, yeah, but I want to do something that's not specifically mentioned in Scripture. God says, I'm, I'm not going to list every single thing you could do wrong and give you a list of ideas and ways to sin more spectacularly. God just basically says, what you need to know, you're going to be like, I don't even know what that is. But uh, God says, I'm going to give you my design and just let you know everything else outside of that. I don't want you guys messing with that. That's not my plan. And so when somebody says, yeah, the Bible doesn't say anything about that, you take them to this verse, but, but also look up the words fornication. Look up the term sexual immorality in the Bible, and it's all over the place. The Bible has a whole lot to say about it. A whole lot to say about it. Covetousness refers to the greedy desire to have more. The greedy desire to have more. And it's worth not- noticing that covetousness, which is driven by greed, is linked in the same verse to sexual immorality. It's linked to sexual immorality. It's that desire that says, I I want it. And last week we talked about how lust is is like fire because the more you feed it, the more it demands. The more you feed it, the more it demands. And, And sexual immorality and lust go hand in hand and they create this sort of perpetual motion machine inside of you that continually produces covetousness a desire to have more. It's an insatiable desire, and the more you feed it, the more intense the desire becomes. And you begin to care, care less and less about the price you pay to get your latest fix. You don't really care who you have to hurt, who you have to take advantage of. Lust and sexual immorality truthfully work like any other addiction. The process is the same. The more you feed it, the more it demands. It's never satisfied. It just creates this perpetual motion machine. Paul is emphatic about the subject of sexual immorality. He says, let it not even be named among you. Let it not even be named among you. Uh, Let that sink in. Paul's telling us that there's no place for that among you guys. It's not fitting behavior for you. And, And to understand this, I think it helps to shift our perspective to the perspective of a father. Can you imagine as a father, your young daughter you love so much coming to you and saying, hey, hey, here's the thing. I'm just going to play around a little bit with heroin. I'm just going to play around a little bit of cocaine. Just a little bit. Not, not, a, not enough to get addicted or anything like that, but I'm just going to play around with it a little bit. As a party, I just want to be social. It's not considered a weird thing. Don't worry. It's not going to put me on the fringe crowd or anything. It's just a little bit. Now, your reaction as a father, as a mom, is your reaction driven by a desire to put them in their place? Is your response going to be, well, then you're grounded. I really don't think that's going to be the reaction of a loving father. What your reaction is going to be is going to be, you you don't understand. It'll ruin your life. It'll ruin your life. Don't. Don't even touch that stuff. 
Don't even go places where people are touching that stuff because it will take you over. And everything about your response is driven by a heart of love. It's driven by a heart of compassion. It's driven by a desire to protect your child and want good things for them. You would be a horrendous father if you said, well, you got to try everything once. What a horrendous parent you would be. No desire to spare your child from pain and suffering. No desire. And we all get that illustration where we're talking about drugs. It's not much different in the area of sexual immorality. It's not. And God the Father is looking down and he's saying, "You, you don't understand. This will ruin you. It'll ruin you. It'll wrap chains around you that you will wish were not there and you won't know how to get them off. It'll ruin you. And this is, this is God's heart when he says, let it not even be named among you. He's not saying, I'm in the business of really squeaky clean people and I don't want you not being really squeaky clean so I look bad. That's not the heart driving God. It's the heart of a father who says, this will ruin you. This will ruin you. I know how this is supposed to work. And I want to protect you. You're my kid. You're my kid. That's the heart of a father. The great lie that, that Satan is having great success with in most of our lives, if we're honest, is that sexual immorality works differently. That it somehow works differently. You can dabble. You, yeah, you, you can get a taste and not be affected. You, you can regularly consume movies and TV shows and internet content that have some sex in it. It's not really a big deal. And it's a lie from Satan that is working beautifully. Beautifully. We're falling for it hook, line, and sinker. And you know why it works so well? It's because he targets our pride. He targets our pride. He says, you know what? It's brilliant. It's a brilliant strategy from Satan because what he says is he says, you know what? You're a great Christian. You're a great Christian. You're a godly person. You know, you're so strong in the Lord. You could do this and it would have no effect on you because you're walking with God, you know? So mighty warrior of God, go right ahead. It's not gonna have an impact on you. You're walking with Christ, hallelujah. Targets our pride is what he does and we become puffed up and we say, yeah, yeah, you know what? That, that doesn't affect me. You know, I'm, I, I've reached a high enough level where, you know, I'm, I'm above that now. Doesn't affect me. Doesn't affect me anymore. And that's Satan's great strategy. And out of our arrogance, we believe him. Because we want to believe that we're stronger than Samson. We want to believe we're more in love with Jesus than David was. And we're not. We're not. That's why Paul says, don't let it even be named among you. It's not fitting for you. God has your best interest at heart. He is my best interest at heart. Here's a truth that will help you the sooner you, you can grasp this. Sometimes what's best for us looks very, very different from how the rest of the world is living. Sometimes what's best for us looks very, very different from how the rest of the world is living. You know, if you're a parent, I pray that you're not coming to a conclusion about what's best for your kids by polling the rest of the world. 
I really do. If you're living your life, I pray that you're not just taking a straw poll by watching what everyone else is doing and saying, I can only assume that what everyone else is doing is the right thing, so I'll just do that. The problem with that is uh, things like the Third Reich, right? (laughs) You know, (laughs) doing it because everybody else is doing it sure does not make it right. I think we could all agree on that. The right way to live might be very, very different from how everybody else is living. And that's where faith enters the picture. That's where faith enters the picture. And God says, okay, okay, when there is a contrast between how I've called you to live, the best way to live, and how most other people are living, do you trust me? Do you believe me? Or do you just believe in me? Man, that is the question of faith, isn't it? Do you believe in God or do you believe God? A lot of us believe in God, but we don't believe God. We don't believe God. And I'm not oblivious to the culture we live in. I'm not blind to the direction that society is moving in in, in terms of sexual liberty and things like that. But, but let me say this to tuck away in, in our minds. As we talk, j- just for a second, just rationally about spirituality and philosophy, um, I'm fascinated by the concept of absolute truth. Absolute truth, because I think rationally you can agree that there must be absolutes in the universe in order for any type of all-powerful being to exist. It has to be absolutes. And so if you have a belief system that when you step back, you're able to say, you know what, my belief system changes to mirror the values of the culture I live in. If your belief system is simply a mirror of the values of culture, then at least be intellectually honest with yourself and admit that whatever you believe in can't possibly be real. It's just something you've come up with to make yourself feel like a better person because there's no absolutes involved in it. You're just mirroring the values of culture. And that's where Christianity is is very, very different because we claim to worship an all-powerful, unchanging God who created the heavens and the earth and from day one had a plan all the way to the final day of earth till he makes all things new. That's the God we claim to worship. And so we would be liars if our faith changed to reflect the values of the culture that we live in. If our faith changed, you shouldn't believe it because everything that we claim to believe would be a lie. But we believe the same words that Christ spoke 2,000 years ago today. We believe them because we believe in absolute truth and we believe that God and Jesus Christ is the essence of absolute truth. So if your religion, if your personal belief system is simply a mirror reflection of culture, you're a relativist, which means that what you believe truth is is relative, that it does change. And I'm not here to bash you, but I am here to make you at least see there's, there's a great difference between that belief system and what Christianity believes. And the price of believing in an unchanging God is that culture is not always going to mirror the values of your unchanging God. It's impossible across the scope of history. And don't forget that when Paul wrote this, he's writing this in Ephesus, a, a city that is sexually liberated in a way that we, we can't even fully, fully understand. And I won't get into details, but now that I've shared that, some of you will go look that up on Wikipedia later today anyway. But much, much more liberal than we are today. Much more liberal. 
So keep in mind, Paul is writing to them these things in a time that's even more liberal than the city and the times that we're living in now. So you can't look at the scriptures and say, yeah, that, that was just a reflection of the values of that time. You, you have no idea how out of step with the values of that time outside of Jerusalem the writings of Paul were, the teachings of Jesus were. Even in Israel, Jesus was completely out of step. Jesus was too liberal for Israel. Paul was too conservative for believers outside of Israel. It was out of step from the beginning because it's rooted in an unchanging God. And I say all this to encourage you with with this. Don't ever, ever, ever be embarrassed or apologize for the word of God. Ever, ever. I, I can't stress this enough. We believe that the Bible is the words of Jesus Christ, the God we love, the God who died for us. We, we believe the word is, in essence, Jesus. So imagine what we're doing when we tell someone, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry that that part's in the Bible. That's a little awkward for all of us. Jesus said, if you deny me in front of men, I'll deny you in front of my Father. Those are harsh words. Do not ever apologize for Jesus. Do not apologize to the creation for the existence of their creator. Ever. Don't ever do that. Don't ever, ever do that. It's a serious, serious issue. Fornication, sexual immorality, don't even let it be named among you. Verse 4, Paul says, Neither filthiness nor foolish talk, talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. This verse was problematic for me um, because I've been known to embody the entire verse. Um, what Paul is talking about here is he's, he's talking about dirty jokes and sexually charged wordplay and things like that. And you might be thinking, seriously, Paul? In 2013, like, take a chill pill, man. Like, calm down. <laughs> calm down. About 10 years ago, the pastor of a church I was working at told me something I never forgot. I never forgot. He said, Jeff, if you want to change a culture's perception or position towards a moral issue, the best way to do it is to get them to laugh at it. Get them to laugh at it. He said, because when people laugh at something, they don't find it threatening or dangerous. You know what? He's, he was absolutely right. He's absolutely right. If, if, if you want to change a culture, you have something that is taboo, which is frowned upon in culture, or the moral values of a culture won't tolerate it. Step one to changing a culture's perception towards that issue is getting them to laugh at it. Getting them to laugh at it. Because the second you do that, you're taking it less seriously. And that's step one. You have God on one side saying, don't even let sexual immorality be named among you. And you have Satan on the other side saying, well, he doesn't say, do let it be named among you. That's not really his comeback. He says, oh, come on, God. Don't be, don't be such a prude. In fact, that reminds me of this joke I heard. That's, that's what Satan says. And everyone just has a laugh and forgets that we were talking about a serious issue. And Satan's goal is to let us, get us to take sin less seriously. Satan's goal is to get us to take sin less seriously. And if he can get us to take sin even slightly less seriously, he's very, very, very happy. And, and in, our, in our marriage series, we, we talked about the fact that God is not a prude. God invented sex. He's the inventor of it. 
He came up with it. It's not like he made the human bodies and then we were like, hey God, check out what it turns out we can do with the stuff. That's not really like how it happened. God like designed the whole thing. The whole thing. God did it all. And, and, and here's the issue. This is where Satan misrepresents God very effectively to our culture. God places a higher value on sex than Satan does. Much higher. God says this is spiritual. This is sacred. This is profound. This is two souls coming together and becoming one. It's a profound spiritual event. And Satan says, no, what are you talking about? It's just two people doing their thing. Two people doing their thing. Satan places a low, low, low value on sex, and God places a high value on it, high, high value. God says, says listen, when, when that happens, you are becoming one with that person. When you do that in a fickle manner, we are talking about souls being ripped apart. We are talking about leaving a part of yourself, your essence, with a person. You're destroying your essence as you spread that around. That's what God says. And so, and so when we talk to our kids about this issue about sex, I, I pray that above more than anything else, our appeal to them wouldn't be, you could get an STD, or yeah, but you could get pregnant, or people will find out you'll get a bad reputation. I, I, I pray that the greatest thing we would share with our kids is, listen, this is two souls becoming one. You're going to literally rip yourself apart from the inside if you don't take this seriously and don't treat it as sacred. You're going to destroy your essence. You're destroying your soul when you do this. That's, that's the greatest issue. That's the greatest issue that we're talking about. God says this is profound. And Satan says, no, 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 no. I just want to make it not that big of a deal. And have you, if, if he can get us to laugh at something that's designed to be sacred and spiritual, then, then he's well on his way. He's well on his way. Have you ever noticed how that, how that stuff sticks in your mind? Uh, let me put this in perspective. How many times do you need to read a verse before you memorize it? How many times do you need to hear a dirty joke before you memorize it? Just once, right? Just once. Just once. I, I remember dirty jokes from when I was a kid, you know? Heard them one time. I can't even tell you how much scripture I've forgotten that I've tried to memorize. But stuff gets stuck in your head. You, you internalize it. And when we stop taking something seriously, we let our guard down, spiritually and literally. And Satan is patient. Man, he loves quick success, but he's also all about the long con. Satan is all about the long con. He knows how enticing and how addictive sexual sin is and sexual immorality, and he's willing to take his time to get you and I hooked. He'll just keep slowly chipping away at our view of sex. He'll just keep chipping away at it. Little less sacred. Little less sacred. Little less spiritual. Little less holy. Little less meaningful. I want you to imagine all, all the decisions in this area of your life like a deck of cards. You're holding a deck of cards that all represent different decisions. You've got them in a deck. How, ma how many cards can you see? You only see one, right? You only see the one on top. You only see the one on top. God knows what's on the second card. He knows what's on the third he knows what's on the fourth. He knows everything all the way through the deck. And that, that top card might represent a seemingly very innocuous decision. Not an important decision. Top card might just be, yeah, yeah, um, this is a great show. You know, this show has a, I know it has a reputation for some like really explicit sex stuff, but 
But it's a great story and there's really good action. Really good action. That's the top card. That's all you see. And so you evaluate that, that top card and you just say, oh, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But making that choice affects what shows up on the second card, what that next choice is. Second card might be, you know, I'm, I'm not really phased by nudity, so, uh, so I'm fine to watch this. Or I know this movie, I know, I know it's got a lot of press because there's this really over-the-top sex scene in it, but, uh, you know, I watched that show and that didn't really affect me, so I'll, I'll be fine with this as well. Be fine with this as well. Making that choice affects how we react to the third card and so on. And there's not a single cycle of addiction that ever began with the sentence, you know, I went out one night and I thought, I think I'll become a drug addict and destroy my life. There's no story that begins that way, ever, ever. It's never how it starts. But God is a loving Father who knows every deck, every card, all the way through that deck. And and when he speaks, when he instructs us, when he counsels us in his word, he does so with a full understanding. He's looking across the scope of time. He's looking across your life, all at the same time. And with that perspective, God speaks and gives counsel and gives wisdom. And write this down. This is huge. When we choose to neglect God's counsel, his advice, we are claiming to have greater insight into ourselves than our creator does. That's what we're doing. We're saying, God, God, I hear your advice, but I think I know myself. Thank you very much, God. I think I know myself, and we don't. If God says, you can't handle this, then we can't handle it. We can't handle it. Are we wiser or smarter than God? No, we're not. So let's stop out of our own pride pretending that we are wiser, pretending that we are smarter, pretending that we're the exception somehow. Paul had the opportunity to minister in a lot of different contexts, and Paul addresses the issue of sexual immorality to the Corinthians, to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, all these different cities all over ancient Europe. Because this is a human issue. It's not just a cultural issue. It's a human heart issue that everybody deals with. And you and I are not the exception. In verse 5 he says, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater. You might want to underline that. Who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. When, when, when sexual immorality is the focus of your life, when it's what you crave more than anything else, whether it's that next movie, that next website, that next hookup, that's become your idol. And idolatry is despised by God because it places the creation above the creator. And sexual immorality places the creature above the creator. Above the creator. What Paul is telling us is that people who live unrepentantly and unashamedly pursuing their lusts in sexual idolatry and claim to be believers are exposed by their actions as not being believers at all. They're exposed. Talking about unrepentant, unashamed people who say, yeah, yeah, I'm a believer. Yeah, I'm a believer. I'm living with my significant other, but I'm a believer. Doesn't that bother you? No. Paul says, yeah, you're exposed. There's no repentance. You you cannot be following Jesus and consciously ignore him and have that have no effect on your spirit. 
the only way it can have no effect on, on your spirit is if you're not a follower. The Holy Spirit isn't in you. That's what Paul is saying. Paul says, know this, they're not believers. They're not believers, so don't act like them. Paul's not saying it's impossible for a believer to fall into these sins. We can. We're still saved. And, and how do you know? How do you know you're still saved when you've fallen into this stuff? Because you are ashamed. You are ashamed. And you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know it's not right. You're sick about it. You hate yourself. You just don't know how to stop. And that same Holy Spirit is telling you, stop living like you don't know God. Stop it. Stop it. Paul knows that this is usually where someone in the room is thinking, well, well I heard this one guy one time say, or, or, or say, you know, well, well, I heard a guy, I read in a book that the original language and the culture actually means that this doesn't really apply to, to our time today. Someone's usually thinking that but doesn't want to say it out loud. Just know this. There are always people who will tell you the lies you want to hear. It's no great accomplishment to find them. The Bible calls them false teachers. False teachers. One of the most interesting guys who does this, who's famous, this is Wikipedia worthy, by the way, this one right here. Rasputin, the Russian monk, started this form of Gnosticism, this perversion of the Christian faith, where, where this is their logic, right? They're like, okay, so when we sin... There's grace. So, therefore, in order for grace to increase, so should sin. And so Rasputin went around the Russian countryside having sex with as many women as he possibly could in the name of increasing grace. It's not surprising when some people hear that and go, makes sense to me. It's not surprising. You've just found someone who's finally telling you what you want to hear. For the believer, we've made the commitment that we care more about truth than indulging ourselves. I just want to know the truth. I want to know the truth. That's how somebody comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, is they reach that point in their life where they say, I know I'm lacking something and I want the truth. I want the truth so badly that I don't care if the truth doesn't jive with what I want it to be. I just want the truth. Give me the truth. I want it. That's when a person comes to know God. When a person says, I want the truth as long as it's not this. You're not going to find it. You're not going to find it. To long for the truth is to be open to whatever it might be and be more concerned about knowing the truth than having your own desires affirmed. Paul says in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. Empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. There's all kinds of wacky beliefs. We had guys, our church I was in in Florida, two guys left to join a compound. And that's, that's always the start of a bad story, right? You know, <laughs> What gave it away? It was the compound, really, that gave it away. But it was a, a Christian sect, and, and, and their whole belief system was, since we're saved by grace, it's now impossible for us to sin. It's impossible for us to sin. Like, like wacky, wacky stuff. And you think, how do you believe that? And the answer is, well, it's really easy. It's what they wanted to believe. And they just found somebody who would finally say it. It's what they wanted to believe. 
Paul is emphatic, and, and I hope we understood that today in this issue. Paul's emphatic. He told us to walk in love, and in order to walk in love, we need to understand how dangerous lust is. We need to be able to distinguish between love that honors others and considers them better and lust which steals from others and treats them like a commodity. Lust says, what can I get from you? Love says, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? How can I honor you? Walk in love, flee from lust. And I put this down. Learn to discern the difference from a distance. Seriously, learn to know the difference, but learn to know the difference from a mile away. You don't want to wake up one day and go, oh man, I've got a lust issue, I'm on fire, how did this happen? (laughs) You don't want to do that. It would be much better to heed the counsel of Christ, the counsel of the Lord, and imitate him, imitate Jesus. Walk in love, flee from lust, learn to discern the difference from a distance. And this isn't in my notes, but I, I just want to share this. Number one way you see this happen in Christianity. Number one way. I see Christians all the time where, let, let me be frank, okay? I see Christians all the time where we're just stupid. We are just so stupid. And here's what I mean. It's like, okay, now that I'm saved, I don't have an issue with lust. Now that I'm saved, I don't have an issue with lust. So, um, you know what? Let's go hang out in a darklit area and do a Bible study together. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, we're believers now, right? But I, I see this all the time. You know, it's, it, like we've, we talked about this before, that what makes a woman feel loved especially is being listened to. I see Christian guys all the time who are married or are talking to somebody who's in a relationship, and they let themselves get in a situation where a woman is pouring out her heart to them as a guy. You don't click that every second you listen to her pour out her heart, she is feeling from you love. Psychologists say that it is indistinguishable to the human brain, the reaction that is caused by feeling listened to and feeling loved. They are identical on a chemical level. If you feel listened to, you feel loved. End of story. End of story. So if you have a guy and you're with a woman who's pouring out her heart to you, sharing intimate details of her life, there's a connection happening. And we're just stupid. We're stupid as believers half the time. We're like, hey, You know, but we love Jesus, so that's not an issue anymore. Did certain parts of your body fall off when you became a believer? It's still an issue. It's still an issue. Still an issue. It's still an issue. And we need to be wise about that. We need to be wise about that. We really, really do. And and, and for men, that's like, men, don't don't let yourself get in that situation. Grab a woman and be like, hey, you need to talk to sister so-and-so. That's what you need to do. Lie if you have to. You're like, you listen, you're pouring out your heart to me and I'm just hearing like blah, blah, blah. So let me go, let me, let me go get sister so-and-so. Just get out of the situation. Get out of the situation, you know. Get out of the situation. And here's the problem with, with like women is, is like women just struggle to comprehend the filthiness of a man's mind, you know. And so they, they, they act accordingly all the time, all the time. You got to be, be wise, be wise. Realize that we're not in our redeemed bodies yet, right? We're not in our new bodies. We're in the same bodies, dealing with the same issues every day. So be wise. That's why Paul says, man, don't let it even be named among you. 
Don't let it even be named among you. And the only time when we make those foolish mistakes is when our pride takes over and we start believing, I'm holy enough. I'm holy enough. I can play with that fire and I won't get burned because I've reached level seven, you know? He's like, man, man. The Bible says we only attain to the fullness of Christ when we arrive in his presence. Till the meantime, we, we, we just gotta adjust our lifestyle and our decisions to try and walk in holiness and righteousness. That's what I mean when I, when I say learn to know the difference between love and lust and, and learn, learn it from a mile away. Learn it from a mile away. This is the bottom line. If you're a dude, you cannot counsel an attractive woman without something bad happening. You just can't. You can't. At a minimum, you'll be battling something bad on a mental level within yourself. What? Don't do that to yourself. Don't do that to yourself, you know. And if you're a woman and there's a guy who wants to pour his heart out to you and you listen to him, just know, as delusional as it sounds, that guy is immediately thinking, she's definitely interested in me. <laughs> you know, and you hear all the women are like, oh, that's great. No, really. Like, literally, we're that delusional as men, you know. It's just the way that God wired us. Men are delusional, you know. She's probably interested in me. It's just the way we are. So be, be wise, especially as believers about how we interact with each other. Don't even let it be named among you. Don't even let it be named among you. Let's, uh, we're going to wrap up and, uh, and pray in just a minute. And here, here's what I just want us to ask. I, I want you to examine yourself in, in the time that's coming up that we have to worship and take communion. And just, just ask the issue. Is Satan's strategy working on you? to take this issue less seriously? Is he chipping away at your view of sex and purity and holiness? Is it working? Have you bought into the lie that, that strokes your ego that says, man, this doesn't have an effect on me? It doesn't have an effect on me. Have you bought into that? And are there tangible things that you need to do in your life, things you need to eliminate from your life, patterns of behavior, things that you're watching on a regular basis that you, you need to eliminate because maybe you're recognizing that your sensitivity is dulling and you're not feeling the same conviction you once did. You're not getting more mature. You're just becoming hard-hearted. That's all that's happening. Maybe you're in a lifestyle that you need to change. But, but here's what I want to do. I always want to encourage us. Repentance is changing your mind about something. So if there's something you need to do business with God about, it's not about us having a big cry session right now. It's much more about what are you going to do about it? It's much more about what decisions are you going to make in your life when you walk out these doors. That's what repentance is. That's what repentance is. So ask the Lord, God, is there anything you need to show me that I need to change in my life? Is there anything? And be open to hear from God. Be open to hear from him.